Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, May 12th, 2022, and it is such a great pleasure to be together with you tonight, to be able to study together, and I'm grateful to every one of you for making the time to join me tonight. This week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Emor, contains the mitzvah of Sfiras HaOmer, counting the Omer, which we are in the middle of completing. This past day, coming to an end now, but this past day has been the 26th day of the Omer. We're right in the middle. Next week, Wednesday night and Thursday, is Lag Ba'omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. Lag means 33. Lamed stands for 30. Gimel stands for 3. Lag stands for 33. It is the 33rd day of the Omer. That's next Wednesday night and Thursday. And it's a very special and unique day. Now, this holiday of Lagba Omer next week can be enjoyed superficially. This is an open invitation. Please join us at Adath on Thursday at 5 p.m. We're having a barbecue. It'll be a lot of fun. Information is on our website. Sign up. We'd love to have you. But in truth, this day is very deep. And so it's worthwhile to take some time tonight to examine a number of the aspects and layers of this complex holiday that's coming next week. So let's begin. Not at the beginning. Let's start in the middle. One of the well-known associations of Lagba Omer is with Rashbi, which is the acronym for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai. Rashbi, as he is often referred to, was an incredible, reclusive scholar in the generation after the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans. So he lived at the beginning of the second century of the Common Era. He is credited by some, though this is disputed, but at least some credit him with writing the Zohar. The Zohar is the main text of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. And one theory about why Lag Ba'omer is a holiday, which, as we will see, is a very difficult question to answer. Why is this a holiday? One theory is it was on this day that Rashbi revealed his masterpiece and the Zohar first illuminated the world. Now, the Zohar is a very esoteric work. It's misunderstood by most. It's actually studied seriously by very, very few. But even if you don't study the Zohar, even if you are not involved in the study of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, there is one foundational aspect of it, which is something that every Jew should know about. 
And that is that Kabbalah teaches that everything in the world, every person, every object, every event, has an outer reality that we can see, superficial, but also has an inner reality that is a secret, a deeper layer. And that deeper layer somehow is all connected into one, meaning it's all connected to God. Kabbalah is about the interconnectedness of everything. Listen to how Sivan Rahab Meir expresses this. Even without being Kabbalists, this day calls upon us to adopt a more inner look at things at the Torah, because on the surface, we see the stories on the surface, but there is, as we know from our studies together, there is so much more depth when we look at it in a more advanced manner. At reality around us, there is a superficial view. Very often the media highlights this superficial view, but we all know there are deeper realities to everything around us, to everything that happens. And the same is true with each other. We look at someone. We may think that we know them. We may think that we know what their experience is like. And yet, we should know by now, we have no idea. People have depth to them. And very often, I would say most of the time, one person has no idea of what another is really and truly going through. This is a day when we are reminded that most of reality is actually invisible below the surface. And therefore, we should make an effort to pay attention to it and to try to understand it, not simply accept what's there on the superficial level. So if that's a 60-second introduction to Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, let's take this approach for Lagba Omer itself. And let's try to see the inner complexity, the deeper ambiguity of this day and the lessons that we can derive from it. I must tell you, that I love Lagba Omer. I'm looking forward to it as I do every year. And one of the reasons I love it is because everything about it is unclear, contradictory, and problematic. Starting with the name, Lagba Omer. Now that name does not actually make sense, and I'll explain what I mean. Among Jews, there are two different ways to count the Omer. A person could say about last night, it was the 26th day, le Omer, of the Omer. Or a person could say, last night was the 26th day, be Omer, in the Omer. And in fact, if you go around the world, some congregations and people will say le Omer, and some people will say be Omer. 
Okay. That's okay. Different customs, different wordings in different places. It doesn't change the meaning, really. We know what we're saying, but it's a slight nuance of difference, which should be explored for another time. But here's what's curious. Even those places that count the Omer by saying le Omer, for example, Adaf and most Ashkenaz shuls, most Ashkenaz places will count, will say the bracha so-and-so day, le Omer, of the Omer. But even those places like us, when we get to the 33rd day, when we count the Omer for the mitzvah, we will say the 33rd day, le Omer, of the Omer, like we do for all the days. But the holiday we call, be Omer. Everyone says, lag be Omer. Why do we call it lag be Omer? if in fact we ought to be calling it Lag Le Omer. And yet, universally, it's called Lag Be Omer, even though that's not the word that we use when we count. All right, there are a number of reasons given to this problem, and we'll leave that for another time. It's just one minor aspect of the mystery of this day. Lagba Omer is not mentioned anywhere in the Talmud. There is no reference anywhere to anything special about the date, 33rd day in the Omer. Nor during the period of the Gaonim, the centuries just after the Talmud, the early medieval period, no mention of Lagba Omer at all, not until we get to the late 13th century. In the late 13th century, we have the earliest mention of a date, something specific about this date on the calendar, Lagva Omer, and we find it in the writing of Meiri. Now, Meiri was a medieval classic commentator to the Talmud. He lived in Spain. He wrote his work as a commentary to the Talmud. So first let's look at this passage in the Talmud, and then we'll see what Meiri says in commenting on it, where he, again, for the first time that we know of, mentions this date of Lagba Omer. Let's start with the Talmud. <clears throat> the Talmud says, Shnei Maser Elef Zugim Tamidim Hayula Rebbe Akiva. Rebbe Akiva, the great Rebbe Akiva, we've been talking about him a couple of times in, in recent days. He lived in this generation after the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans. He had 12,000 pairs of students. 24,000 students. Has anyone in all of human history had 24,000 students at one time? I don't know. This is not likes on Instagram. You understand. It means that Rabbi Kiva had this personal, deep relationship with every one of them. How is it even possible? He had 12,000 pairs, 24,000 students. Migvat ad antiparas. 
I don't know exactly where those two places are, but in other words, from the top to bottom, from north to south, from east to west, meaning covering the country of Israel, who's living in Israel, in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. V'kulon mesu beperek echad. And all 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died in one season. Mipnei, because they did not treat each other with the appropriate amount of honor and respect. Tana, a later scholar, stated, Kulam mesu mi pesach They all died between Pesach and Shavuos. There are so many questions that are raised by that passage. Why did they die? What 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 sin did they commit that it was so serious that caused the death of 24,000 students? How did it come about? Why is it significant that it's in this period between Pesach and Shavuos? It's it's just it's one question on top of another. And keep in mind, these are students of Rabbi Akiva whose motto in life was love your fellow as you love yourself. This is the most important lesson that the Torah teaches. And he had 24,000 students who did not show the proper honor and respect each other. How is it even possible to imagine such a thing? Okay. Question on top of question on top of question. Let's now turn to the Me'iri. The Me'iri is writing in the late 1300s. And listen to what he says. He says, There is a tradition that comes from earlier. We don't find any mention of this earlier. This is the first mention that we find of it. That on the 33rd day of the Omer, this is the first mention of that date as a specific date. Of note, Pascha Hamisa, no one died. On that day, 24,000 over a period of about six weeks from the end of Pesach to the beginning of Shavuos is about six weeks. 24,000, I mean, just work out the math, how many funerals that is per day. There was one day nobody died. Okay, that's... Quirky. That's that's uh, curious, interesting. Of course, it means that every single other day, many, many people died, but on one day, no one died. The And because of that, we have the custom. We don't fast on that day. We don't treat it like a sad day. Okay, so we don't have, we don't, 
utilize that day if something terrible happens and you might think to yourself, maybe we should proclaim a fast day. We don't proclaim that day as a fast day. Okay, that's something. And we also have the custom that we do not allow weddings during this period except for Lagba Omer because of the terrible tragedy that happened that on every other day 20, 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva were in the process of dying every day over the six-week period. <clears throat> that's in the 13th century. Coming forward to the 1500s in Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law by Rabbi Yosef Cairo, quotes the same ruling that on Lagba Omer, we're not allowed to fast, we're not allowed to treat it like a sad day, and also we are allowed to shave, we're allowed to get a haircut, and we're allowed to have weddings because many people do not do those things for the entire period between Pesach and Shavuos. On Lagba Omer, you could take a shave. On Lagba Omer, you could cut your hair. On Lagba Omer, you could have a wedding. But there is no indication even here in the 1500s of any reason to celebrate that day. There's a reason to say it's not as bad as yesterday and it's not as bad as tomorrow, but there's still no reason given that it should be a celebration. And no reason is offered. The Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Isilis, writing in the mid to late 1500s, writes the following words, Umar bimbo Sas Simcha, we add on that day, Lagba Omer, a little joy. Now, first of all, I'm not sure exactly what that means. A little joy, how much is a little, how much is too much? A little joy. One thing I could tell you, whatever it is, it's not a blowout, right? It's it's not a celebration. It's not everybody having the time of their lives. Something, whatever you're going to call a little bit of joy. And by the way, no reason is given here either. No reason. What? Why should there be a little joy? Nothing. Nothing. It's it's just it's a it's a riddle. It's a mystery. And it is only recently in modern times that it has become a wild celebration, especially in Israel. And also, only in the modern era is any connection drawn to Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. That idea that I mentioned to you, that maybe we celebrate on Lagba Omer because Rashbi unveiled his Zohar. Or there's some other opinions. It's the yard side of Rashbi or some other reason. None, no such reason is mentioned by anyone until the modern period. But these associations have been embraced 
and are celebrated with great enthusiasm, especially in Israel, but in all parts of the world. just a, it's a conundrum. So let's go back to the Talmud. Let's go back to the origin. 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva died during six weeks. That is a catastrophe, a, a, a tragedy of historic proportions. 24,000 advanced scholars and they died? What happened? They didn't show the proper honor or respect each other. As I said before, how is that even possible to, to envision students of Rabbi Akiva with what he stood for and taught with his whole life would not have lived up a little bit to his legacy, to his teaching? And what is such a sin that is so terrible that it calls for death? We don't know. Because there is no record, there is no reference anywhere to what actually happened. How this came about and caused this traumatic, tragic outcome. No explanation anywhere. So, my teacher, Rabbi Yaakov Ruderman, suggests a possibility. Now, it's only circumstantial. There is no actual source for this. It is a hypothesis. But, as I will show you, it's possible that this is actually what happened. Let's move to a different part of the Talmud different volume, different tractate, different subject. It happens just by the way to be the subject of the Omer. Because remember what it is that we're counting during these days. On the second day of Pesach, there was an offering brought in the Beis HaMikdash of barley. And on the first day of Shavuos, there was another offering that was brought of two loaves of bread from wheat flour. And the days that connect those two offerings, the barley offering and the wheat offering, that is what we are actually counting in these 49 days between them. And the word Omer, I mentioned this before, is the measurement of how much was brought of that barley on the second day of Pesach. Okay, so there's a discussion in the Mishnah about the details of the offering of the barley on Pesach and the offering of the wheat on Shavuos. And then we come to the Talmud. The Talmud says, Yosef Rebbe Tarfan v'kokashile. Rebbe Tarfan was sitting in the study hall and he asked the following question. Now, let's understand. Rebbe Tarfan was one of the greatest sages of his era. He was a contemporary and a colleague of Rebbe Akiva. Remember, they were two of the five at that famous Pesach Seder that we read about in the Haggadah every year. Rebbe Tarfan was among the greatest, the most advanced, the most respected in the whole world at that time. And he asked a question. 
It's a technical question. The details of the question do not concern us right now. But let me assure you that when Rabbi Tarfin asks a question, it's a good question. There are no easy answers to Rabbi Tarfin's question. If Rabbi, if Rabbi Tarfin asks a question, meaning he doesn't have the answer to this, you better believe that's some difficult stuff that someone's going to have to figure out. Rabbi Tarfin asked a question. Amr Lafan of Yehuda ben Amr Lafan of Yehuda bar Nehemia. Yehuda, the son of Nehemia, said, Now, let's just notice that Yehuda, the son of Nehemia, is introduced to us without any title. We know who Rabbi Tarfan was. He was the greatest. He was at the top. Who is Yehuda ben Nehemia? No title. Obviously, he was a student. He was a junior, a junior student. Yehuda bar Nehemia offers an answer to Rabbi Tarfan's question. And the Talmud says, Shosak Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Tarfan was silent. Meaning, this junior scholar, this Baichik, had been able to answer a question that the great Rabbi Tarfan was not able to answer. It's an amazing achievement. When does it ever happen that the junior person is able to understand something that the most senior person was not able to grasp? Okay. Sohavu panov shall Yehuda ben Nehemia. The face of Yehuda became radiant. Amr lo Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said to this person, Yehuda, so remember, Rabbi Akiva is the colleague of Rabbi Tarfan, and it seems pretty clear from the context that Yehuda ben Nehemia is the student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva said to his student, Yehuda, Yehuda, Tzahavu Panecha, Shehashavta Es Zakein, Yehuda, did your face just become radiant because you outsmarted the great Rebbe Tarfan? Is that why I can see that you're so elated, you're so ecstatic because you bested Rebbe Tarfan? To Mahani, im tarich yamim, I would be astonished if your life continues for a long time. Now, all the commentators point out, Rabbi Kiva is not, God forbid, saying some kind of curse that he hopes, God forbid, that this student will lose his life. God forbid. He's just saying, I just don't see how a person who would take joy in besting one of the great scholars, one of the greatest scholars, I just don't see how that person is going to live a long time. Next clue. Amar Rabbi Yehuda Rabbi Eloi, this is Rabbi Yehuda, says, Oso Perek 
That incident happened just after Pesach. When I went back to that place for Shavuos, this is Rebbe Yehuda, right? One of the main scholars. Rebbe Yehuda says, when I went back to that place where this happened for Shavuos, Sha'alti Achrav, I asked somebody, how is Yehuda ben Nechemia doing? Va'amruli, and they said to me, Niftar v'holachlo, he passed away. Now listen, it's a very subtle thing. Tsohavu panav, his face became radiant. Well, first of all, that that that's an ambiguous term. Was he happy because he got the right answer? Maybe there's not anything wrong with that. Or was he happy that he knew the answer and his great master and teacher did not know? Was there a little bit of, of um, triumphalism there? Says Rav Rudiman, there are some hints here that maybe, again, it's a hypothesis, maybe, no direct evidence, but there are some hints. Maybe this is an example of what it means, one did not treat the other with a proper respect. To take pleasure when someone else makes a mistake, to, make ple to take pleasure that someone else doesn't know something. Maybe that's a not showing the, the appropriate honor and respect, especially to an elder sage. Maybe this kind of thing was widespread among other students of Rabbi Akiva. Certainly, it's a lesson whether this is the story or not, it is a lesson we need to take to heart. One of the great scholars of the previous generation was Rabbi Aaron Cutler. Among his many achievements, he is the one who started the yeshiva in Lakewood, New Jersey, that started with a handful of students in an area that had no Jewish life to it, and is now one of the largest places of study of Torah in the world, by far. Rabbi Aaron Cutler once announced to his students, I'm celebrating today. Today's a holiday. Because for years, there was a certain passage in a certain book. And I was had a question and I was trying to figure out the answer to this question. And today I figured it out. I have an answer to this question that I've been carrying around for years. Today's a celebration. Today's a holiday. But then he added, I was only privileged to find a solution to this question which I've been chasing for years because not once in those many years did it occur to me that the problem laid with the author. I always understood the problem was my lack of understanding. Dr. Abraham Torsky tells an amazing story. A teacher once told his young student that two yuds together, the Hebrew letter yud, 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 in a lot of printed editions of Jewish books like a Siddur or a Chumash, yud, yud 
is meant to be a representation of God's name and should be read as Hashem or whatever name of God you're going to use. It's like a an abbreviation, a shorthand. It stands for Hashem's name, Yud Yud. One Yud next to the other. So this child learned the lesson and the child is reading, let's say, from a Chumash. And every time he came to the end of a Pasuk, the end of a verse, he said God's name. So the teacher asked him, why are you saying God's name at the end of every single verse? God's name is not the last word in every single verse. So the boy said, well, you told me that a Yud next to a Yud is God's name. And at the end of the verse, the way uh, 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 the Chumash is written in, in, in Hebrew texts, the end of every verse has what we would call a colon. One dot on top of the other dot. And that indicates in English grammar, we would use a period. But in Hebrew publishing, it's not a period, it's a colon. Two dots, one on top of the other. But it looks kind of like two yuds, one on top of the other. So this student, this boy made a mistake. His teacher said two yuds together means God's name. The teacher meant, of course, one side by side. Yud here and Yud here, you read that as God's name. This boy didn't understand the side by side. He sees one here, one there. He thought it meant the same thing. So the teacher said to him, no, no. And listen carefully. The teacher said to him, when you see two Yuds or Yids, Jews, standing side by side, treating other with respect, that represents the divine presence. That's a symbol that God's presence is there. But when there are two Yuds, one on top of the other, two Jews, two Yids, one is on top of the other, one thinks I'm better than you, you're beneath me. When that happens, that does not bring God's presence. That indicates a termination. That indicates a stop. So, okay, it is certainly a lesson that we need to take to heart, but it's still hard to understand. I mean, that's it. That, I mean, okay, it wasn't exactly the proper respect, but because somebody smiled a little bit too much, you're telling me it was that kind of thing that 24,000 great scholars lost their lives? I mean, it just, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem appropriate. And for that reason, some read these words in the Talmud as a kind of code. There's some other story that is being told here. Some other story that could not at that moment be told openly. So what we're reading with the death of 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva is really some kind of code for something else. Well, what might that other story be? One suggestion is Let's remember the historical context of Rabbi Akiva and his students. Some years after the Chorban Bayashani, the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans, 
about 60 years later, there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Bar Kokhba was a general. He led a rebellion against Rome. He had an army of Jewish soldiers and he led a rebellion against Rome. Now, the common narrative of that uprising, that rebellion of Bar Kokhba, is that it was short-lived. It was put down decisively by the Romans. But more recently, scholars have started to reevaluate that history. And scholars have started to suggest that, in fact, Bar Kokhba was more successful than maybe we thought. For example, we now know that Bar Kokhba was able to reclaim Jerusalem and declare it as the capital of a new commonwealth and even mint coins. We have found these coins that indicate that Jerusalem was once again the capital of Israel under Jewish control. Maybe at that moment, with Bar Kokhba seemingly victorious, maybe we're on the cusp of a major shift in Jewish history. And writes Rabbi Pinchas Stolper with evidence that he brings in an article he published a number of years ago, Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, is the day, the anniversary of the day that Bar Kokhba reconquered Jerusalem. Well, if Lag Baomer is really the day that Bar Kokhba reconquered Jerusalem as the reestablished capital, first of all, it makes perfect sense why that story could not have been told in the time of the Talmud when the Romans had crushed the uprising and taken retribution against anyone who had participated. Nobody could tell a story about some partial triumph. But perhaps at that moment, it looked like the base of Midrash was going to be rebuilt. The exile would come to a swift end. And this explains the comment that is attributed to Rabbi Akiva himself, that at least at one point in his life, he said about Bar Kokhba that this man is Mashiach. He's the Messiah. He's ushering in the Messianic era. Maybe it's because the rebellion was so successful that it actually looked like the redemption was at hand. But for whatever reason, it did not materialize. Perhaps the 24,000 students who died were actually 24,000 soldiers of Bar Kokhba killed by the Romans as they viciously put down the rebellion of Bar Kokhba, turning out the light on any quick redemption or rebuilding of Jerusalem. Again, there is no firm source for this. It's a hypothesis that would explain 
both the sadness of the season, these aspects of mourning that we have between Pesach and Shavuos, and the ebullient joy of this day of Lagba Omer, that part would fit in. But again, there's no evidence. <laughs> no proof, just conjecture. So let's now turn to a completely different approach on the celebratory nature of Lagba Omer amidst the gloom of what happened to Rabbi Akiva's students. Let's look again back to this enigmatic passage in the Talmud because I have a confession. When I read it to you before, I did not read the whole thing. I left out two lines. Let's read it again. Rabbi Kiva had 24, 12,000 pairs of students from one end of the land to the other. And they all died in one season. Because they did not treat each other with the proper honor and respect. And the world was desolate. That's all the scholars there were. There was no one left to study Torah. There was no one left to keep alive the transmission of Torah wisdom from one generation to another. What had began at Mount Sinai and was passed down from each generation was in danger of being obliterated, lost. At Shabbat Rabbi Akiva Eitzor until Rabbi Akiva went to the south of Israel and he found there five students. Vashon Alehem. And Rabbi Akiva started over with these five. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon. Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 advanced students. They all died. And he started over again with five. Last line I want to read to you. And these five, the Haim, Haim, Hamidu, Torah, Osasha. These five are the ones who were responsible from the trans, for the transmission of Torah from the generation of Rabbi Akiva to the next generation, which was a generation of the flourishing of the Talmudic era. So allow me to share one last lesson that I learned from my teacher, Rabbi Yaakov Ruderman, a blessed memory. None of us can even imagine what Rabbi Akiva must have experienced to have had 24,000 advanced students and have them all die because they didn't live up to his central message of his life. I mean, surely he must have thought that everything he had done in his life was worthless, that everything he had tried to build was destroyed, that he had accomplished nothing in this world. 
Among the many lessons, you see from this narrative the power of each individual to transform the world. Rabbi Kiva understood, and these five made it real that five individuals, or even one individual, can transform the world, just like 24,000. The Haim, Haim, Hamidu, Torah, Osasha. Those five, imagine the responsibility on their shoulders. If not for them, Torah will be lost forever from the Jewish people, God forbid. The celebration of Lagba Omer is that these five who did not die were able to reestablish all that had been achieved by the 24,000 students. The next generation, I mentioned to you before, is the Talmudic era. It was one of the most prolific, one of the most fruitful generations of advanced Torah study in all of Jewish history. And the most remarkable is Rabbi Kiva himself, who was able to, notwithstanding what must have been his trauma, to say, no, I'm not finished. I'm not defeated. My life has not been worthless. I have to start over again. Okay, I never thought at this age I'd have to start over again from, from zero. But okay, that's what I have to do. And so he started over with five. To be able to start over with five after losing 24,000? Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, once said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful individuals can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And that is certainly worth celebrating and remembering today. Allow me to share one last approach, and we'll end with this. Back to the Me'iri, the first one who mentions Lagba Omer. Let's remember his words. Kabbalah biyada ga'onim shibiyom Lagba Omer paskah miso. On the 33rd day of the Omer, no one died. The day before, many people died. The day after, many people died. On Lagba Omer, on that day, no one died. And that's the first mention of anything significant about this date. And that eventually evolves into this day of celebration as it exists today. Uh, a joyous day, an exuberant day, where mourning is lifted, where weddings take place, we listen to music, we get haircuts, all these things. But what's at the root of our celebration on Lagba Omer? 
the root is during a terrible, tragic, and traumatic period of incomprehensible loss and destruction. There was one day where nothing bad happened. And it is the genius of the Jewish people that we turned nothing bad happened today into a reason to celebrate. Great is nice. Exciting is fine. But good, calm, is so much more valuable. Let's take from Lagba Omer. With all the terrible things that happen and are happening, if there is a good day, if there is a calm day, nothing bad happened. Let's grab that opportunity to celebrate. Because that is the deepest message of Lagba Omer. My friends, I want to wish you a great evening, a wonderful Shabbos, and a fantastic celebration of Lagba Omer next week. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.